0: I'd say so you probably are really great at finding great engineering VP and other great things and a great process and, and maybe you're like, and then like, okay, there's something like somewhat adjacent to engineering like product or something and you probably worked with a lot of great product people in the past so you're probably pretty good at hiring for product too right so get those things off your plate first get all the things you're really good at off your plate you can f- h- hire just incredible people plus those people probably really want to work for you if you're really good at it whereas like maybe a great salesperson doesn't want to work for you and then and then kind of like over time and then while you're doing that you're actually...
1: Thanks Jess, happy to be here. So you've got an exciting background. You know, CEO of SafeGraph is is cool, but there's a lot more to it. Investor in 70 companies, uh founder of uh, a company that had some pretty big exe- success being public. Can you give us kind of the 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 brief overview? The the how did you get from starting your career to CEO at SafeGraph?
0: Sure. Just, well, I started a first company when I was in college, I had to pay my way through college and started running out of money my junior year. So we started an internet company and then just kind of like that kind of one thing led to another and just kept, kept doing that, kept doing that, that, that career move. So
1: give people a little bit of background on, uh, on Ramp, on live ramp.
0: Uh, LiveRamp, my last company, was uh, is a middleware company, so uh, it basically connects marketing applications to one another. I think every time you start a company, there's, it's important that you have some sort of secret, so something that you believe that other people don't believe. And when we were doing LiveRamp, the core secret that we we believed, uh, which was very unpopular at the time, was that the number of of vendors, the number of technology vendors for market for the marketing stack, was going to continue to grow. And already at the time, there were these like huge logo scapes, and it was already so confusing. And we were saying, no, it's not going to consolidate, which is what everybody was saying. It's actually going to continue to get even more fragmented. There's going to be more things, and then you're going to need to connect more of these things together. And certainly over the last decade, that has been the, that has been true. Whether that continues to happen over the next decade you know, is, is up for debate. But we were able to play into a, ma- a massive trend of way more vendors, and that's really what LiveRamp is about. The more vendors, more fragmentation, better it is for a middleware company, which LiveRamp is more consolidation, the worse it is for, you know, a middleware company. So that's what we did for for LiveRamp. And huge success. What's their market cap these days? Maybe like four or five billion is the market cap in in that range.
1: Congratulations on co-founding that. And and so with with this new venture here, what what did you feel like the secret was that that you had when you wanted to start SafeGraph? Well, well SafeGraph
0: is really just a data company and historically selling just data, so we just sell facts. We don't sell a UI, analytics tools or anything. It's literally just facts. And historically selling facts has just not been a great business. There's been a small number of buyers that like care deeply about those facts and maybe would pay a lot of money and like nobody else willing to buy. And we we were we believe that we're just on the cusp of this data science revolution, where data scientists like they they obviously have their own internal data. They're starting to spend a lot of money on tools and software. Everyone knew that. But we believe that there, there was this because of this huge influx of the number of data scientists and all this different focus on data science that they're also going to want data like real data of high quality data and not just facts that are like 50 percent true or 60 percent true or something like that, which is kind of the typical data stack, but data that could really model And they could really take in and they could actually run their business off of or run their, you know, or basically predict the future off of. And so that has to be, you know, at least in the mid-90s percent true, often in the very high 90s percent true before they can rely on it. And so that's what we focused on with with Safegraph. And Safegraph, you know, we specifically focus on data about physical places. So if if you want it to be in the data world, there's really four things that you could have data on. You could have data about people. You could have data about places. That's where Safegraph is. You could have data on organizations or companies or something like that, and you could have data on products. So those are, those four categories probably are ninety eight percent of data. And of course, you can cross them with each other. You can cross them with time. You can cross them with price. So if you think of a stock ticker like the AT and T tick, right? So that would be that would be organization data cross with time, cross with price, and you can get that data going back like over a hundred years. So that those are the different flavors of how one can think about data.
1: You know, um, it, it's interesting. I was watching uh, your guys' webinar that you did with Goldman Sachs about the way they're using some of your location data for basically getting better information faster on economic forecasts and, and recognizing what's just happened instead of waiting months for official reports. Right. Yep. And, um, and offline, I've got a I've got the potential client for you to meet over at Bloomberg. They're really interested in some alt data for one of their divisions. Okay, so. awesome.
0: That'd be that'd be great. Yeah, we do we do a lot of stuff with a lot of we have we have hundreds of, of economists. They use our data from, you know, many, many different universities, big organizations like the Federal Reserve use our data to help understand the economy. Obviously some huge different macro funds and different other uh, banks and other types of things. Anyone who wants to understand like the state of the economy, anyone investing in real estate. So we do a lot of stuff with those types of companies and they're great to work with. If you think the Federal Reserve, like some of the smartest people in the world work at the federal reserve. These are like incredibly talented people who are incredibly dedicated people to what they're doing. They could all make five times as much money going somewhere else. Like they're, you know, it's not like the federal reserve is the highest paying person for a, for a given, a talented person yet they're there because they really are dedicated. They care deeply about the mission. They care deeply about what they're doing. And, and so it's really great to work with uh, super talented people like that.
1: Well, I mean, so I'm such a big fan of of Howard Marks from Oak Tree Capital if you know him. Yeah. And kind of the way he follows Warren Buffett's principles and and now part of Brookfield but you know when he talks about this idea of like if you really think you're going to have any advantage in in investing like what is it that you think you know that everyone else doesn't know otherwise it's just an ego. Otherwise it's just ego, right? And so for you guys to know more people are doing this and not that because you know what the foot traffic for this brand was or you know what's going on for that industrial real estate location that other people don't know. Like it's a literal information edge.
0: Well, I, you know, maybe I, not I,
1: everybody I, might have. I,
0: I think that is – that's true but it's – and it's also – it's also it's also not true. So mm. I, I think it's a – again, we sell facts and so the – and, and we want to democratize access to those facts. So I, I think everybody who's investing in these things should get access to our facts. So it's not necessarily that they'll have an edge on the core fact. The the hard part is how do you actually interpret those facts? How do you put those facts together with other facts? How do you... And, that's not what we do, right? So we, we, we just tell you this happened. This is true. This happened. Now, what does that mean for the future? How do you, how, that is a much, in some ways, a much harder job. That's what our customers do with that data. And they need the core facts as an ingredient. So if you think of like, if you make the analogy of like, we're an ingredient. So let's say we're high quality butter. And we're selling to these pastry chefs, right? So I'm sure you've had many different croissants in your life that use butter, right? And even if they have the best butter in the world, some croissants taste like styrofoam and some croissants just melt in your mouth and you're like, oh my, this chef is incredible, whoever put this together. So just because you have the high quality ingredient does not mean you're going to make the best pastry, but it is essential to making it. You can't make a great pastry without the high quality ingredient. Um, that's, That's a great analogy.
1: You know, shifting gears for a minute, I'm interested with, well, let, let's talk for just a second. T- tell us about tell us about the show that you're doing these days.
0: Sure, we have a podcast called World of DAS um, and a D-A-A-S for data as a service. It's for data nerds. It's for people who care deeply about how data businesses are run. So their their data businesses are are very different than a, a, a DAS business is, is run differently than a SaaS business, which I think most people are very familiar with, right? The software as a service businesses, how they're going, how they're run. Data businesses have many similarities to SaaS businesses, but also many, many core differences. So we really try to dive in with the very, very best data businesses. How are they doing? How do you get a compounding advantage? How do you acquire companies? And then we also try to dive in with some like data practitioners that are using data. So it, it's definitely pretty nerdy. So it's for the the kind of nerdy or the, the real business person who really cares deeply about these data businesses.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like this has been such an incredible service to me to be able to interview such innovative people and people who have accomplished so much like yourself, it's been like such an upgrade to my thinking. I'm interested if you've experienced that at all. Like uh, let's talk about a couple of guys. Henry Schach, CEO of Zoom Info, you know, $17 billion market cap company. What's, what's one like, CEO insight that maybe you got from that. Yeah, sure.
0: So I mean so again we run Safegraph. Safegraph is as of this recording a hundred people. So we're much, much smaller than Zoom info is. But but we are actively trying right now to acquire other companies. One of the most successful acquirers over the last 10 years has been Zoom Info. They've, just been, they've done an incredibly good job of, acquire, of figuring out what companies to acquire, how do you actually acquire them, how do you get that to be productive, et cetera. And we spent a, a, at least a third of the episode just actually walking through what's the playbook, how do you do it, how do you use debt versus equity, how do you think about what, what do you, you know, and for me, this is like incredibly helpful for me as a CEO, because I'm little at the, just at the early stages of trying to think through all the different stuff. And now I get to talk to a master, someone who's been so successful at doing this. It's been really, really great. Uh, It's like free. He doesn't charge me anything for this advice. Right. And of course, then we, we try to, we try to build in public. So we try to make this advice available to anybody. So anyone who's thinking about through the same kind of issues can also benefit from. So sometimes, you know, in the past, these conversations, you might get someone to give you advice, but it would be a, it's like a closed call and they would be willing to help you now it's like hey let's it, let's let's make it open to everybody let's get everyone involved in this so it can be it can be a really it could be something that can be really good to level everybody up and not just not just one person
1: yeah um, going through that conversation and digging into the way his brain works on it w- are there any aha's that you
0: remember fr- from that conversation well I, I mean i think on the on the on the on the particular thing about doing mna and for a data company So M&A for a data company is very different than doing M&A for a SaaS company. So the first big difference is you don't have a UI. And so actually integrating things in a SaaS company is much more difficult than integrating something in a data company. If you think of data as just like a big CSV, that I'm giving you, which could be an API or whatever, but it's it's just it's just information and usually information conveyed in text. So it's much easier to take two things and kind of put them together. And so usually the big part of and you know, you, you see these companies that that get bought by these big um, you know, big software companies, and and it might take them like 10 years to get integrated. Some of them never get integrated, much easier to do in data. And so, therefore, essentially a data company acquiring another data company could pay more than let's say a private equity company acquiring a data company, right? Whereas in software, that's not always the case. And and you could see a scenario where like the private equity company would pay more than the software company because there's just a lot more synergies on the data company. And then the second thing is like, okay, well, if you're buying a company, how do you do it in the least expensive way as possible? And if you're a company, if you're a super fast growing company, whether it's Zoom Info or whether it's safe, our, our equity is extremely expensive, so, you know, we could buy a company with equity, but if if we're growing like over 100% year over year, essentially our equity is growing over 100% year over year. So if, we're, if we buy a company for $100 million in equity, and and we and we and we double three times or something like that, right? So now all of a sudden we just paid eight hundred million dollars for this particular for this particular asset. If we buy it with debt, you know maybe we can get debt at eight percent interest at you know ten percent interest in today's rates. And now now even over a three year period or something like that, you know even with some warrant coverage and some other types of things, maybe that hundred million goes to two hundred million. Right over time, and and so it's a, so we basically pay twenty five percent as much with with a debt buying than with uh, equity buying. Of course, sometimes you have to do some sort of combo of the both. But that, there's ways to think about it in different. In, 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 in again, it depends how fast your equity is growing. But if you perceive your equity to be growing very very fast, which we're, certainly we do and he did at Zoom Info, then you should be much more stingy about giving that up as opposed to other types of ways to acquire companies.
1: That's an interesting insight. That uh, makes a ton of sense. Maybe the next one, let's talk about Jack Dangermond. What's What's an insight you got from that conversation?
0: Well, Jack Dangermond's the CEO of Esri. Esri is the most interesting company I think that most people have never heard of. So it's a 52-year-old company that is owned 100% by Jack and his wife. And it does about $1.3 billion in revenue every year. It owns the kind of GIS software market and most people have just never seen a company that was built like that without venture capital. Most people have never seen a company where it's been the same CEO for 52 years, right? So obviously, started in his 20s and now in his 70s, built this like incredible company over this time. And I think when you build a company and you build it for the long haul, then you just think about it in a very, very different way. And and it's really just about compounding. You imagine just like compounding 20% every single year, like you're going to get really, really big, but it might take you 50 years to get really, really big. And it's also just a company that I admire greatly. He's a CEO that I admire. And um, I think he's not, I mean, he's multi-billionaire, et cetera, but no one, really, no one outside of his field's ever heard of him. I mean, unless you're like reading the Forbes 400, like going through every single person or something, I don't think anyone's really ever, uh, you know, except in the GIS field. But I think he should be much, much more well-known. And he's also just an incredibly nice and an accessible person. And so has not let, let any of that success gone to his head, and I think partially because it wasn't like he became an overnight success. It was like a 52 year success.
1: Yeah, we should invite him on this show. I, I really Absolutely. liked his insight when you were talking to him and and his idea of like, you were asking about should people, how should, how should founders think about the decision tree of take venture capital or not? And I liked that he didn't have an absolute answer that he, you know, his point about like, well, what's your destination? Like, I, yeah. it's like, I'm not gonna give you a vehicle recommendation until you tell me your destination. I thought yeah. that
0: was so wise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think he is a very wise person and I've learned a lot personally from him. I've had many opportunities to spend some time with him over the years. And, and I, I, I just think he's a wise person and also a good person. And so it's, it's nice to learn from someone who's both wise and good.
1: Yeah. You know, when you think about yourself, you know, growing a multi-billion dollar business and, and now having so much success at SafeGraph already and, and a lot more to come, what's a principle that you live by or what's, what's a, maybe just a theory that you operate on that,
0: that maybe you don't see all the other CEOs out there using? Maybe a very tactical. So a very, very tactical thing that, that I probably do that, that, that I think other CEOs, many other CEOs don't do is I think it's really important to delegate things you're good at and hire for your strengths. And I think most CEOs actually do the opposite. So they try to delegate things they're not good at and they hire for their weaknesses. In fact, that's what most advice tells you if you read like a book or something like that it often says you yeah. should you know, hire for your weaknesses. And, and I, I think it's very, very difficult to delegate things you're bad at and to hire for your weaknesses because... Let's say you're weak at sales. Like, why would you be good at hiring for sales if you're weak at it? And so, but if you're if you're weak at sales but super strong at engineering, you're probably really good at hiring for engineering, right? If that's your strength, right? And so, you probably are really great at finding great engineering VP and other great things and a great process. and And maybe you're like, and then like, okay, there's something like somewhat adjacent to engineering like product or something. And you probably worked with a lot of great product people in the past. So You're probably pretty good at hiring for product too, right? So get those things off your plate first, get all the things you're really good at, off your plate. You can f- h- hire just incredible people. Plus those people probably really want to work for you if you're really good at it. Whereas like maybe a great salesperson doesn't want to work for you. And then and then, kind of like over time. And then while you're doing that, you're actually probably building up your knowledge in these other things that you're not so good at. So you're building up your knowledge in sales because you're forced to. You're building up your knowledge in other areas of the of the company. And then eventually you can like get to a point, maybe you're never great at any of th- at those things, but you get to a point where you like have some good knowledge. You're a little bit more competent and then you can like slowly Delegate those things as well.
1: You know, it's interesting because it would also take overcoming our egos a little bit to hire someone else to do something we're good at, you know, and maybe all of a sudden we're not quite as special as we used to be, or <laughs> right? And true, it, it's, I mean, I see that as a major problem in businesses. Partially you want to make the money and partially you want to be known as the guy who made the money or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and like being humble, being objective. And thinking more about the team and ahead of our own, you know, craving to feel special or something is a huge service to the business, but, but maybe doesn't come naturally to all of us. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts though. This idea of, so for me, it's the opposite. Like I could probably, I can get good salespeople to want to work for us. Right. But then maybe some more of like, you know, the guys who want to go with the Excel spreadsheets 14 times, you know, the, the more the bean counters, that's not my strength. So knowing that, knowing that's not, not my strength, so I'm less likely to understand the nuances of what makes a really great controller, a really great accountant, right? Yeah. If I can offload more of the sales skills or the creativity or some of that stuff, you know, we, we're, we got the investor dollars coming in. Any guidance for attacking those skill that that maybe don't come to me as naturally, knowing that I need to hire the right people there? Well, I mean,
0: also, I mean, most companies are, the best companies in the world are great at two or three things. And then they're mediocre at a few things, and then they're terrible at everything else, right? The best companies in the world—look at Google, Salesforce. Just walk through. It's like, I mean, it's like Salesforce still has like a terrible UI. Like they've just never gotten good. Like it just—they're like they're not even like. It's not like they're world class in UI. They're they're no class in UI. I mean, it's just it's it's almost unusable. There you are. And they're still an amazing company. So, you know, and just so just like every every person, right, whether it's, you know, whether it's your spouse or whether it's, you know, an, it's someone you worked with or whether it's yourself, like we all have glaring weaknesses. But we also have these like incredible strengths. If you think of uh, different of different people like I think it's OK to play to your strengths and just be OK that in certain areas you will, you know, hopefully you go from terrible to mediocre in these, in these areas, but you just, you need a small number that you're amazing at that. You're just like, I mean, Google just has incredible engineers. Right. And you, you know that they're like, like, okay, what is Google great at? They're great at engineering. There's a lot of other stuff that they're still, even though they're, you know, one of the best companies in the history of the world, there's still so many things that they're, they're maybe mediocre at and it's okay because they're so good at a small number of things.
1: That's great. You know, one of my favorite uh, things to ask people. And, and we're kind of winding up for part one here, people. Everybody tune in for part two. I got a bunch more questions for Oren, but what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever?
0: Well, that's a really good question. I would say, I would say probably the very best piece of advice that I've gotten is to avoid good opportunities and spend all your time trying to avoid good opportunities so you could take advantage of the small number of great opportunities. And I think this is very hard for smart people to do. You, you evaluate an opportunity, it comes in, you evaluate it. And if it's like above a certain bar, you do it. And if it's below a certain bar, you don't do it, or something like that. Right. And so you're trying to say, like, like, should I invest this in this or not? Or something, right? I have a hundred dollars and should I make a hundred dollar investment in this particular thing? And is it gonna and if it if it's over, if I believe it'll hit over a certain return profile, I put money into it. And if I if it if it isn't, I don't, or something like that. I think as especially as you get more successful you're gonna get more and more good opportunities coming at you. And, and you can hit a local maxima very, very, very fast if you're only doing good opportunities. And it, it, when you're younger, you, you see like one good opportunity for every 100 opportunities or something. So you're, you're very attuned to finding the good opportunities. As you get more successful, you know, for the 100 opportunities you might see, could be 50 of them are good. It could be that many. And so you have all these different opportunities that are coming at you. But in now it's like only one is great. So how do we really start to really kind of pair everything back so you could spend all your time on the great things and, and as little time as possible on the good things? That's, that's solid. I think I,
1: I definitely suffer from shiny penny syndrome. You know? <laughs> and, and I think that's really great advice. And I, I think it's easier said than done for people like me. But I, I will say, um, kind of looking back sometimes of being frustrated with progress I've made, I, I have been able to make the observation that the less I do, the more money I make, uh-huh. which Seems counterintuitive, right? Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, listen, where's the best places for uh, people to connect with you online? Just follow me at Oren, A-U-R-E-N on Twitter. That's probably by far the best place to, to follow me. Okay, great.
1: Everybody tune in to part two. I've got questions for him. More about SafeGraph, about Peter Thiel, about investing in over 70 technology companies. Lots of good stuff to come. Please tune in for part two. Bye, everyone.